As I mentioned a moment ago, we're concluding our series from Haggai tonight. And so I thought it would be helpful as we do that to quickly retrace where we've been so far with this book. Haggai opens on those Jews who have returned to Jerusalem from exile. And after facing some opposition, the people had ceased their work of rebuilding the temple of God. God then sends Haggai to confront the people. He says that he's given them meager harvests as discipline. And he commands them to return to the project of rebuilding the temple. The people then, unlike many instances in Scripture, respond with repentance. They obey the voice of the Lord and they get to work rebuilding the temple. God then responds to their obedience by promising that he will be with them. All of this in the first chapter of Haggai. Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, then, open about two months after Haggai's first prophecy and about four weeks into the rebuilding work. At this point in the project, the work is not coming along as well as the people had hoped, and disappointment is setting in. And so God speaks to encourage his people. He acknowledges their disappointment. He reminds them that he is with them. He promises that he is at work for their good and for the good of his kingdom. Promises he will shake the nations. He will grow and glorify his kingdom. And they need to trust him. And having given them these assurances, he then tells them that it's time to get back to work. Tonight's text now picks up two months after that and includes two separate messages that were given to Haggai on the same day. So it's three months after the faithful Jews had began rebuilding the temple and two months after the text we looked at last week. So with that context in mind, let's look together at the last portion of Haggai, chapter 2, verses 10 through 23. And as I've done throughout this series, I'll restore the covenant name Yahweh where it's been replaced with the title, The Lord. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of Yahweh came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares Yahweh, and so with every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Now then consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of Yahweh, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares Yahweh. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of Yahweh's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. The word of Yahweh came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. 
saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and the riders. And the horses and the riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares Yahweh of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares Yahweh, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares Yahweh of hosts. This is God's word. Our text tonight divides into three sections, and it's helpful to look at them one at a time and then ask how they come together. The first section is verses 10 through 14. Let's look at that once more and focus just on this section. It says that as the word comes, starting in verse 11, thus says Yahweh of hosts, ask the priest about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest then gives the answer no. And Haggai follows up, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest responds that yes, it becomes unclean. Now, what's going on in this passage? It's odd to read it first, but God is actually making a fairly straightforward and important point here. He begins by drawing Israel's attention to how ceremonial holiness and uncleanness works. These are the ritual laws that God established for his people Israel. Things could be holy, or they could be clean, or they could be unclean. And the status, the ritual status, would affect where that person or object could go. And so a ceremonially unclean person was not permitted in the holy temple, for example. And the status of one object could affect the status of another object if they came into contact. And so in this text, God is directing your attention to the fact that according to the Levitical law, ceremonial holiness does not automatically spread outward, though ceremonial uncleanness often does. And God makes this point with these two case studies. So in the first case study, he draws their attention to the fact that if consecrated food, food that had come from temple sacrifices, were to touch a garment, according to Leviticus 6.20, the garment would become holy. But the spread of holiness would stop there. If the holy garment touches another piece of food, the status of being holy would not spread to that food. In other words, ceremonial holiness that originates from the temple is fairly limited in how much it automatically spreads beyond the temple. In the second case study, he shows that while ceremonial holiness from the temple is limited in how it spreads, ceremonial uncleanness from the people seems to be unlimited in how it spreads. He points out that if a person was ceremonially unclean by touching a corpse, then that ceremonial uncleanness could spread to just about anything. In directing their attention to this, God is warning the Jews not to make the same mistake that their ancestors had made many times before. In the past, God's people had assumed that as long as they had the temple, they would be right with God. As long as they maintained the temple, God would not be upset with them. They could be immoral, they could oppress the poor, they could worship idols, but as long as they maintained temple worship, they assumed that they would be holy in God's eyes. And with these two case studies, God intends to soundly refute that false belief. Instead, he's showing that the opposite is true. 
The holiness of the temple will not automatically render the people holy. But their moral uncleanness will render their temple worship unclean in God's sight. As the people rebuild the temple, God is telling them not to think that it would guarantee his favor. Or as one commentator puts it, the new temple could not transform the community into a holy people, but their moral defilement could infect the whole land. So that's the first point that God is making in this section through Haggai. The second point, when we look at it, almost sounds like the opposite of the first. We find it in verses 15 through 19. In this passage, God is telling Israel to observe how he treated them before they began to rebuild the temple and how he will treat them now that they have begun the rebuilding work. He says that before they started the rebuilding project, he withheld plentiful harvests from them. He was disciplining them. And then he tells them that now that they've begun the work of rebuilding the temple, he's going to bless them with an abundant harvest going forward. So that's the second portion of the text. The third portion, verses 20 through 23, are a renewal of God's promise to shake the heavens, which we looked at last week. But they also include a renewal of the promise of the Davidic covenant. God here points to Zerubbabel, the governor of Jerusalem, a descendant of the line of David, and promises to make from him a ruler who will be identified with God's own rule. He will be a signet ring, he says, for God. In other words, God here is renewing his promise to David, the promise of an eternal king, a Messiah who would rule with God's power. So those are the three sections of our text tonight. Now, as we begin, let's set aside the last portion, return to it later, and look for now at the first two. In the first two, God begins in verses 10 through 14 by telling his people that the temple is no magic talisman that guarantees his favor towards them. And then he continues in verses 15 through 19 to tell the people that he's going to bless them with abundance because they've rebuilt the temple. So how do those two things go together? The tension between those two statements brings out a question that really underlies the book of Haggai as a whole. What role does the temple and temple worship play in Israel's relationship with God? It's a good question. It's a question that comes out of this book. But I think as we think about it, we begin to realize that the issue that's underlying that question is not really confined to Israel or the temple. It's an issue the church has struggled with again and again throughout its history, and one that groups within the church still dispute to this day. The temple itself, we have to remember, among other things, was a symbol, and it contained many symbols. And it was also a site where many rituals of worship were carried out in Israel. And of course, today we have symbols and ritual as well. In this sanctuary, we frequently have water and bread and wine. We have, of course, a pulpit, a table, we have crosses and other signs. But in addition to those symbols, we have rituals. And rituals, the, the word can sound a little bit mysterious, but to sort of demystify it a bit, we can think simply of rituals as being enacted symbols. They're symbols that function more like verbs than nouns. Symbols that we do rather than look at. And we actually have a lot of them. We baptize and we celebrate communion. We kneel and we stand and we lift our hands, all symbolic actions. Our whole service, really, from the big picture, is a ritual. It's a pattern of action that's filled with symbolic meaning. 
And so instead of asking what role does the temple and temple worship play in Israel's relationship with God, it's probably even more helpful to ask our question like this, to ask what role do symbols and rituals play in our relationship with God? What role do symbols and rituals play in our relationship with God? That's the question that we're going to focus on tonight. And as we look at it, we're going to see five different things. And I know that's a bit more than normal. Um, I'll try to keep it brief so everyone gets a good night's sleep. Uh, My vacation starts when we're done here, so I have motivation to move quickly, you know. (laughs) We'll see whether or not that works. But we're going to see five different things uh, emerge as we ask this question. We're going to expose one false assumption. We're going to consider two common but wrong answers to the question. And then we're going to try to hold together two correct and equally important right answers. So the question is, what role do symbols and rituals play in our relationship with God? And we're going to consider one false assumption, two wrong answers, and then two right answers. So here we go. As we ask what role symbols and rituals play in our relationship with God, what false assumptions do we normally bring to that question? Honestly, there are probably a number of false assumptions that we all tend to bring, myself included, but I want to focus on just one of those tonight. We often falsely assume that symbols and rituals function in a way that's fundamentally different in our relationship with God than they function in our relationships with other people. In other words, we think of symbols and rituals in a religious context as if they're a whole different category from symbols and rituals in our normal relationships with other people. But what if they're not? I'd like to contend tonight that, in fact, they're not that different, that symbols and rituals play a role in our relationship with God that's pretty similar to the role that they play in our relationships with other people. Now, that might sound a bit odd. I'll expand in a moment on what I mean by that but I encourage you to come along with me and see where that discussion leads us. Because my suspicion is that as we ask the question, as we ask what role do symbols and rituals play in our relationship with God, a helpful first step might be to ask, well, what role do they play in our other relationships? And so with that new lens out, with that new possible starting point, let's move on to consider two common wrong answers to that question, and then we'll go on to right answers. So what role do symbols and rituals play in our relationship with God? The first common wrong answer is that symbols and rituals are merely unnecessary adornments that are tacked on to our real spiritual relationship with God. So the first wrong answer says that our relationship with God is really unseen and spiritual and that symbols and rituals are, at best, sort of pretty decorations that we attach to that relationship. And this view is shown as problematic in the second section of our text, in verses 15 through 19, because that passage recounts the events of chapter 1 and how God was displeased with Israel when they failed to work on rebuilding the temple, when they failed to do that, which was the step they needed to take to return to temple worship. When Israel failed to make the temple and temple worship a high priority in their relationship to God, God disciplined them. God was displeased with them. Which means that either God is acting in a somewhat petty way here, overreacting about something superficial and unimportant, or it means that the symbol and ritual of the temple were not so superficial or unimportant after all. 
In other words, if God takes symbol and ritual so seriously in his people's relationship with him here, perhaps we should as well. If God sees it as so important, then maybe we're wrong in thinking that symbols and rituals are merely pretty add-ons to our relationship with God. Maybe they're more important than that. We can begin to see why they're so important when we consider the role they play in our other relationships. Peter Lightheart is helpful here. He writes, For many Christians, ceremonies and symbols are more or less unnecessary adornments or enhancements of real life. But these assumptions are false. He goes on to say that instead it is completely wrong to believe that it's possible to have a meeting without ceremony or symbol. Language, which is itself symbolic, and other symbolic acts create, renew, or maintain personal relationships so that there can be no meeting without symbol. Coming into a party full of strangers, you spy a familiar face in a small but lively circle near the hors d'oeuvres. As soon as you enter the circle, you begin to deploy symbols and are deployed too. You use language saying, hello. You exchange greeting gestures, a handshake, a kiss, a hug, a significant exchange of looks, a secret fraternity rite. Should your friend introduce you or other, to other members of the group, you speak, shake hands, smile. Without these symbolic actions, these meaningful uses of the body, no personal relationship would be established. Lightheart continues, or consider a young man who is desperately in love with a young woman. He thinks about her day and night dreams about her, hears her voice in his mind's ear, imagines what it would be like to hold her hand, to kiss her, to take long moonlit walks with her. This might go on for years and years without becoming an actual romance. If he's going to move from internal feelings of infatuation in an imaginary romance to a relationship with a real woman, he must go public. And he does this through symbols. He speaks or writes to her, employing linguistic signs, He sends flowers, which he intends as an erotic symbol rather than an encouragement to horticulture. (laughs) She will respond, if she responds, with symbols, words, or significant actions, which will imply something on the spectrum between invitation and scorn. In these examples, symbols do not dress up and enhance a relationship that already exists. On the contrary, relationships do not exist at all apart from the symbolic and ceremonial exchanges. Let me say that last part once more. Relationships do not exist at all apart from the symbolic and ceremonial exchanges. And he's right, isn't he? Our relationships are all formed and reinforced through symbols, rituals, and ceremonies. Consider even our most intimate relationships. They're formed by enacted symbols. A husband and a wife's relationship are filled with them. A kiss before they part in the morning. A hug upon returning. The words, I love you at the end of a phone call. Shared meal. Holding hands. Even sexual union are all, in a very real way, enacted symbols. The rituals, symbols that we enact, scripts that we repeat, actions meant to communicate something in order to reinforce a relationship. They're not merely dispensable adornments on some kind of real and invisible spiritual union. And if you eliminate them all, the relationship would start to weaken and to wither. We read books to our children while they sit on our laps, very often the same books over and over again at their request. 
We sing to our babies and often the same songs over and over again. We sit down for family meals at the same table again and again. These rituals reinforce and strengthen relationships, even if we can't articulate exactly how they do it. And it's true of other relationships as well. Really, it's true of all of our relationships. Without symbols or symbolic actions, we would increasingly come to resemble, as one author put it, individual brains isolated in their own bone boxes. Symbols and symbolic actions are what make relationships and communication possible. And the same is true of our relationship to God. To dispense of symbolic mediation is not to move closer to God, but to take a step away from him. When the Jews in the book of Haggai neglected the temple and temple worship, it said something. It said something not unlike a husband neglecting family dinners or avoiding the embrace of his wife. Neglecting such symbols communicates an indifference to the other person, a lack of love, not a more spiritual, non-material love. And so it is with us. We kneel when we confess our sins because it says something. And not kneeling would not be neutral, it would just say something different. In fact, our relationship with God is filled with these symbolic interactions. God marks us. By the ritual of baptism, he gathers us weekly as his people. He speaks to us his word. He feeds us at his table. And we sing to God. We kneel before him to confess. And we stand before him to plead. We raise our hands before him in worship. If you strip the symbols and the ritual from Christianity, you're left with a philosophy, not a relationship. So symbols and rituals are not unnecessary ornamentation tacked on to our relationship with God. They're not distractions from the real thing. They're the very means by which we relate to God. So that is our text response to this first common wrong answer. The second common wrong answer is the opposite of the first one. It says that symbols and rituals are the whole substance of our relationship to God. The second wrong answer treats symbols and rituals as if they're all that really matter in how we relate to God. And this is what Haggai's dealing with. It's the opposite temptation in verses 10 through 14. Here, Haggai points to the fact that in the past, Israel seemed to believe that as long as they enacted the right symbols and rituals towards God, then he would be pleased with them. As long as they got that right, then the relationship with God would be in good shape. Haggai tells them in verses 10 through 14 that that is not the case. Proper administration of the temple and its ceremonies would not guarantee a right relationship with God. Now, it may seem obvious, but it's worth taking the time to consider why that is. We said that God cares about the temple in our text, and so he seems to care about symbols and ritual in our relationship with him. So why aren't those symbols and ritual enough? Why aren't they the whole of our relationship to God? And again, we can answer that question by looking to other relationships and asking, are symbols and rituals the whole of our other relationships? And of course, the answer is no. There's more than that to other relationships. Other relationships, to be meaningful, must involve the heart, for one thing. And not only that, they also require acts of service and faithfulness if they're to really mean anything to us. Someone sent me an article from the New York Times not too long ago about an unusual suspect. I'm sorry, an unusual subject. Two very different articles. The article started like this. 
It said, for eager newcomers trying to hustle a life in New York City, there are certain time-honored means of staying afloat. Foaming lattes as a barista, selling books at the Strand, or shepherding spaniels as a paid dog walker. Now, it seems, they can add to this list professional cuddler. In recent years, cuddling, billed as therapeutic non-sexual touch, has become the latest thing in wellness beyond yoga and meditation. A quasi-movement that dates back more than a decade, thanks to Snuggle Mixers, sponsored by the nonprofit group Cuddle Party, has morphed into a cuddle-for-hire industry of one-on-one sessions. The article goes on to explain that the services are non-sexual in nature, and there's no reason uh, that they give to doubt that, but that they include spooning, arm tickling, and deep embraces. Now, I wonder how most of us react to the idea of hiring someone that you don't know to cuddle with you. I think that you can correct me afterwards if I'm wrong, that most of us find that kind of strange. Not necessarily immoral, but something about that idea feels not quite right. And one reason, at least among others, I think, is that because cuddling for most of us is supposed to be part of an actual relationship. It's meaningful in the context of a relationship. In a relationship of affection, cuddling is, we could say, a symbolic interaction that communicates affection. But to divorce the symbol from the relationship seems unnatural to most of us. Which is itself striking because we live in a culture that has already tried so hard for years to divorce sex from meaningful relationships. It's insisted again and again that sex can exist just fine outside the context of a real and committed relationship. But I think that even many who have accepted that cultural claim would still find the idea of cuddling with a hired stranger to be a little bit weird. Such a thing tries to make a meaningful symbol, in this case, a cuddle, a thing in itself. It divorces it from a real relationship, and it doesn't really work. So symbolic actions are supposed to have a heart-level relationship with the other person in order for those actions to be meaningful. But relationships require more than that as well. They require acts of service and faithfulness. Someone can deploy to you all of the standard symbols of friendship. They can smile at you, shake your hand, slap you on the back. They can speak words to you that would indicate camaraderie. But if that person is never there for you when you need them, you don't really consider them a friend. Meaningful relationships involve service. Similarly, a husband can deploy all the symbols and actions of love and affection to his wife. But if he's giving those same symbols of affection and intimacy also to another woman, then the symbols to his wife lose their meaning. Meaningful relationships involve faithfulness. And so it is with God. While our relationship with God is mediated through symbols and ceremonies, it's never mere ceremonialism. The symbols are supposed to communicate a real desire for a real relationship. The symbols are supposed to be accompanied by a life of service to God. The symbols are supposed to be united with a faithfulness that does not turn to other gods, either literal or figurative. So symbols alone are not enough. And just as the temple and its worship all alone were not enough to sustain a relationship between God and Israel, so mere ritual and worship are not enough to sustain a real relationship between us and God today. 
So our question tonight has been, what role do symbols and rituals play in our relationship with God? We've seen two common wrong answers, that they're either unnecessary adornments tacked on to a real spiritual relationship, or that they make up the whole substance of the relationship, two errors that Israel and the church that its history has struggled with. But what are the better answers? What are answers that make more sense out of the role of the, that the temple plays in the book of Haggai? And what emerge are two answers that go together. They're not really either-or answers so much as they're both-end answers. In other words, we need both. We need to hold on to both in order to understand them rightly. What we see first is that authentic symbols and rituals are necessary to express our hearts and relationships. And second, we see that sincere symbols and rituals are needed to shape our hearts and relationships. So they're needed both to express our hearts and relationships and also to shape our hearts. Let's take a look at each of those. So first, authentic symbols and rituals are necessary to express our hearts and relationships. They're how we communicate with those we love in any relationship. A hug, a kiss, a handshake. As we discussed a moment ago, we can't really have relationships without those enacted symbols. Because we can't express what's in our hearts to another person without them. Eliminate all symbols and symbolic communication and ritual, and you lose the means by which we're able to express to another person how we really feel about them. Every day we rely on rituals, on small interactions and phrases that we've used again and again to express our hearts to people around us whom we love. And it's worth noting that to express our hearts and to do it authentically, we don't usually believe that we have to do something new and original. I can use the phrase, I love you, to tell my wife how I feel towards her. And the fact that millions or billions of others have used that same phrase doesn't make it inauthentic. I don't need to come up with a new phrase every time I want to authentically tell her how I feel. And the same is true of physical interactions. A hug is authentic because we mean it, not because we invented ourselves. Like worship traditions that are handed down from one generation to another, we were taught by our culture which standard symbols to use to express love for each other. Originality is not a requirement for authenticity. Instead, for the overwhelming majority of our expressions to those we love, we use standard symbols and rituals, whether they're words or actions. And this is why Israel needed the temple in its ritual worship. It was the way for them to express their loyalty to God and their joy in Him. Not unlike a hug or a smile or a shared meal, it expressed their love for God. They could not fully relate to God without some set of symbols. And neither can we. How can we express our humility before God? We could just tell Him, I guess. But why not just get on our knees? How are we going to express our praise towards Him? Well, speaking words would do in some ways, but putting those words to song and raising our hands, adding those symbolic gestures seems to enhance it, seems somehow better to us. How are we to express that we want to be close to God? Once again, we could employ the symbols of language just to tell him, but getting up and walking forward and coming to his table to receive something from him often seems better. In the same way, symbols and rituals all express how we feel towards God. So it is with all relationships, and so it was with Israel's relationship to God. 
They needed the temple if they were to express their desire for and their loyalty to God rightly. But authentic expression is really only half of the picture. And honestly, it might be even less than that. Because important as symbols are as a means to expressing ourselves to God, they're even more important as a way of shaping our hearts towards God. Which is why we need to consider the second answer, that sincere symbols and rituals are needed to shape our hearts and relationships. So how do these two things relate? Authentic expressing versus sincere shaping. What's the difference and what's similar? There was actually another New York Times article, I don't know why I've been reading the New York Times so much lately, uh, that I came across recently uh, by Adam Grant, and it was titled, Unless You're Oprah, Be Yourself is Terrible Advice. And this article begins by focusing on the fact that our culture is really kind of obsessed with authenticity, with the idea of erasing the gap between what we feel and believe inside and how we present ourselves to the world on the outside. As others have pointed out, we live in the age of authenticity. Everyone wants to be authentic. But Grant questions that in his article. He points out that often other people don't really like who we are inside. And in fact, if we're honest, often we don't really like who we are inside. And maybe who we are inside isn't actually that bedrock, that unchanging core that we're often tempted to think that it is. Maybe we change more than we imagine. And if that's the case, he asks, what should we seek to be instead if we're not seeking to be authentic? He writes, decades ago, the literary critic Lionel Trilling gave us an answer that sounds very old-fashioned to our authentic ears. Sincerity. Instead of searching for our inner selves and making a concerted effort to express them, Trilling urged us to start with our outer selves. Pay attention to how we present ourselves to others and then strive to be the people that we claim to be. Rather than changing from the inside out, you bring the outside in. So where authenticity tries to express what's already in our hearts, sincerity in this view seeks to take who we present ourselves are as who we want to be and to try to really be that person, to internalize it, to let it shape our hearts. And we use symbols and rituals that way in relationships all the time. When we're arguing with our spouse and there's a moment of silent tension, we might reach across the table, take their hand, and say, I love you. Now, we don't do that because warm feelings are welling up in our hearts at that moment. But we're also not trying to be deceptive or hypocritical. We do it because we want both ourselves and our spouse to feel what those words and that symbolic gesture express. We want to feel affection and love for each other. And we hope that even just a little bit, those words and gestures will shape our heart and our spouse's heart in that moment. We hope they will melt our hearts a little bit. That the words will become more true after they're spoken. Similarly, if we feel distant from one of our young children, we might make a point to put them on our lap, to hold them and to read to them, not because we already feel close to them, but in order that we might. We might give a hearty handshake and a smile to someone that we've recently had to forgive, not because we already feel positively or warmly towards them, and also not because we're trying to trick them into thinking that we do, 
but because we genuinely want to feel that way. We want our hearts to follow our actions. We want fellowship to be fully restored. We want those outer symbols to shape our inner reality. And so it often is with our relationship with God. We do not confess our sins only when we feel contrite. More often we confess in order that we might feel contrite. We don't praise God for His provision only when we feel particularly thankful. We often praise God so that we might feel more thankful. We don't just kneel before God because we already feel humble, but often we do it so that we might feel humble. And we don't just sing words that we feel, but we sing the words that we want to feel. And the heart-shaping power of symbols and rituals may be the most important role that they play in relationships, especially in our relationship to God. That is why Israel needed the temple. Israel needed the temple not just to express an already present love for God, but to constantly reshape their hearts and minds towards the reality of God. As much as symbol and ritual were how Israel was to express itself to God, it was even more how God would shape and disciple Israel. And in that way, our worship is not so different today. When God wants to relate to his people, he uses means. He uses symbols. And that comes out even more as we return again to that last portion of our text, verses 20-23. Here we have a prophecy that not only repeats God's promise to shake the nations, but that adds the promise of a future Messiah. And for us on the other side of the Incarnation, that should have a particular and special meaning. Because it reminds us that when God wanted to draw especially close to us, He didn't move away from signs and symbols. He didn't pull back from using physical mediation in exchange for something that would be more spiritual, more non-material. Instead, when God wanted to draw close to His people, He employed even more physical means. He became human. He walked this earth where He used human touch and words and symbolic gestures again and again to draw close to His people. God did not treat these symbols and gestures and other physical mediums as a barrier to a spiritual relationship, but as a means by which they were possible. And so Jesus spoke to and blessed and embraced and ate with His people. And so He still does today. As we gather to hear His Word, to be fed at His table every Lord's Day, to receive His blessing. Of course, we must not turn our Christian symbols and rituals into magic talismans. But we also must not despise them. Instead, we're called to embrace them, as we do in every other relationship, as a means by which we not only express how we feel to God, but by which He shapes our hearts and expresses Himself to us. Amen.